Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. My first question is, um, are we meeting next week or are you all going skiing in Colorado for spring break? I never, I mean, you never know. I never, you never know what's, are you going to, are you going to be here next week? Is everybody going to be here next week? No, you're not going to be here. Frayers have children, so is everybody else going to be here? Who's not going to be here? Frayers, that's good. I mean, it's not good that you're not going to be here, but it's good that you're going to be somewhere else with your cool family. Everybody else going to be here, so we're going to go next week? I will be here. Okay, so we'll go next week, and then we'll take two weeks off. Uh, no, we'll take, wait, hold on. We'll go next week. Let me just think where I am. Following week is, is Good Friday, so we won't go that day. And then I'm trying to think, um, next week we'll go then. Yeah, so often, you know, if you're not going to be away for spring break, we'll go. That'll be fine. Zeller's going to be here. You staying here? Good. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, questions about anything? Anything we need to chat about? Uh, okay, so this is kind of a fun one. Um, bringing other people to Jesus in prayer, which is not always intuitive, um, but it is actually quite biblical, so that, that'll be fun. Um, all right, so we've been a long, uh, you know, we've been sort of a long path, which is nice. Uh, to just sort of think things through. And the places we've been have been quite nice. So, you know, God asks us to pray, but we don't have to pray to inform him. He already knows things. And uh, we don't have to pray in order to bang on him so that he'll, um, you know, give us what we want. We don't have to badger him. And, and I probably should have said this, you know, earlier when we were talking about the woman who bangs on the door and the guy who goes next door. I mean, the problem is, isn't that God doesn't want to give, it's that we're not willing to receive. And we sort of need to remember that. It's the pagan religions where you have to sort of pound on the gods until they give you what you want. You know, Christianity is upside down. You know, on the Sabbath day you rest and God provides. Every other religion, the Sabbath day, the feast day is set apart so you work really hard and you can try to talk the gods into doing what you want. Christianity is exactly the opposite. The reason you rest on the Sabbath, you stay in one place, you gather your family, you don't get distracted. The reason you have a Sabbath is because God is so willing to give you things and you just can't sit still long enough to have them. So you know, he says, sit still and I'll serve you. In pagan religions, it's exactly the opposite. You have to serve God. And if you make a really good show of it, then God will do what you want. Okay, so prayer is the same way. It's not that you have to badger God or inform God. Um, God already knows, and God is far more willing to give than you are to ask. And sometimes we, it's interesting how paganism kind of slips in on us. You know, good works is about paganism, good works to save yourself or good works to make God love you. That's paganism. Badgering God, that's paganism. Um, Yahweh, the covenant maker, the God who moves first, the one who lives by grace, the one who gives the gifts, he's the God who's just begging you to talk to him. He's the one who's begging you to take his gifts. Mary, I think it's because I was standing right underneath that, and if I just don't stand right underneath it, I should be okay. You're right. So I just, I got to keep, I got to not move that direction. So um, in any case, uh, it's such a nice place to be in terms of your prayers. You know, God doesn't need your prayers, but he wants your prayers. And your prayers are good for you. 
um, may be better than they are for you than they are for God. So um, two things to kind of start with. Got an extra one? You do. Good. Okay. Um, you remember in ancient mythology, Atlas was the one who carried the world on his shoulders. You remember that? That's actually what the church does, although I'll give you a different um, story other than uh, it's a story I like very much. Um, already this, well, three things. I have all these things going in my head, so slow down. The first one is, in ancient mythology, Atlas was the one who bore the world. You remember that story, right? That's what the church does to the world. The church bears the world. So now, that's the first thing. Second thing, already this morning, I bumped into a pagan uh, who I said, and I found this to be everything from, you know, um, buying shirts in a store to having your car fixed to being at the gas station to my encounter already this morning. I almost reflexively now say to people, I will pray for you. Um, I don't actually ask them if I can pray for them. I ask them if I can bless them, but I tell them that I'll pray for them because I need them to go along with the blessing, but I don't need them to go along with the prayers. So I can do what I want. So I often say to people, and I've already had this encounter er very early this morning, I bumped into somebody who was clearly a pagan. I said, well, and to, so, you know, blah, blah. And then I said, well, I'll pray for you. And this great look of puzzlement, and then um, sort of like, it w I think the response was something like, um, I mean, if I read the response properly, I think the response was something like, yeah, well, you can do that if you want, but I don't know if it'll do any good. But it actually will do some good because the church bears the world. And then a third thing. Occasionally, someone will um, make fun of Christians who pray um, as if it doesn't, because you don't get what you want, therefore, God's not listening, or God doesn't care, or God doesn't love, or something like that. But there's an old story about um, somebody coming to a monk and saying, um, why do you pray all day? And then the monk replies, um, do you know what would happen to the world if I stopped? See, that's the other side of the coin. Or the rabbis had an old story where they said, if everybody in the whole world prayed at the same time, the Messiah would come. See? So there's, there's, all, sorts of, there's all sorts of reasons to say your prayers, uh, but chief among them is that God is just wants you to pray, not because you'll get something magically or because he's not paying attention or because you have to pound on him, no, it just sort of opens the floodgates to all the blessings that the Lord chooses to give. And so um, one of the best things you can do is pray for other people. Um, it's such an, and, and this is going to be extraordinarily practical, and I actually, I have observed the shift, and, and John Kleine pointed it out, and I was happy. You're always happy when again, uh, because you, you wonder to yourself if you're crazy. But I can tell you from a um, from very young time, I can remember that, um, you know, people were frustrated that their church isn't growing or that, that people have children who don't go to church anymore. And this is, this is um, you know, true now. I mean, kids, you know, almost rhythmically fall away. And then if you've done well, they almost rhythmically come back. But, you know, often you have this great frustration in very uh, fine families that their kids have fallen away and that, you know, they have baptized children, but then suddenly they have unbaptized grandchildren. And um, whatever you say to them um, seems to um, drive them away. Now, we can pause and talk about what it is that people are actually saying. I'll just suggest to you that there's been a cultural shift. But I can remember through my own childhood, um, 
What did you say to family members who didn't go to church? What did you say? Yeah, you're going straight to hell by God, and you gave them a lot of this, which, of course, when you give them a lot of this, what happens? Yeah, they run away, because what is this? This is the law, and it's demeaning, and it's judgment, and it makes them feel horrible, and it tells them what they already knew about themselves. Yeah, you just, you know, you think you're loving them, and so, so people's, uh, how, how do people, how do you get people back in the church? Well, you crab at them a lot. You nag them. You tell them how horrible they are, because you know this is going to work, right? And I, you know, I grew up in the entire, the entire last couple of generations, real honestly, and you still get whiffs of it. Um, you know, and sometimes people will come to us and say, you know, we've got all these people who haven't, you know, been to church, and what are you doing? And usually, you should call them on the phone and say, barely, barely, I say to you, if you do, you know. I mean, really? If, you, if I called you uh, and I started, you know, saying, what a bad person you are because you haven't been in church, the conversation is not going to last very long, and pretty soon, with caller ID, it's very easy for people not to pick up. You've got to call about three people, and they know what's coming, right? So I just suggest to you, and I've lived through that, and at least in this parish, that has very much diminished. Um, there are still a few people who you know, want to put the law on everybody at every chance, but very little, and there's very little complaint. Because I think what you've all figured out is complaint and the constant application of the law does not draw, draw people to Jesus. It actually drives people away. You're telling people what they already know about themselves. People know they're not going to church. They know they have kids who aren't baptized. They know they're struggling, and they know that they've got troubles in their lives. And we often think that we can, and you know, if you thought about it, if we thought about it, you know, Lutherans always say the law condemns and only the gospel brings the peace. Well, you know, usually our approach to people who are out of the church is a lot of law and almost no gospel. We sit around and tell people how horrible they are. You're so horrible, you should get back to church. And of course, what people are thinking is, is why would I go back to a place that's telling me how horrible I am, right? And so the whole thing you have to do with a church is you create relationships with people and you love them wherever they happen to be. So the best conversation I've had this week uh, was with some new members, and I, or visitors. They aren't members. They're visitors, but they visited three or four times now. And I said, you know, how's it going? They said, we love this, we love that. And they said, what we really love is Bible study. And they said, you know what we loved most is we sat with some people one week at a table, and then the next week we moved to a different table to meet some new people, and they said, and the people at the old table were fighting over us. <laughs> I'm like, that's the church you want. You want the church where if new people would sit here, and then next week they sit over there, you would look over there and say, what's wrong with us? We'd love you. Why would you sit with those people over there, <laughs> right? And then these people would say, because we're so much more fun. See, but we want you to, and so their response to this congregation was, wow, you're the sort of, you're the sort of place that, I mean, we haven't been to church in years, but you're the sort of place that would fight over us when we come back. You see, you see what a different, you see what a different vibe that is, right? So um, the cool thing is, is that's what happens. Um, that's what happens uh, when people come to church. The other side of that coin, of course, is if you're a parent and you're, you know, you have college-age kids or you have 20-year-old kids. When your kids fall away and you have grandkids that don't get baptized and blah, 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 and then all your friends know about it, and how do you feel about yourself? You feel horrible. 
right? Like I failed and what did I do and I wish I'd have done that. Remember that time I yelled and I should have been and then I thought I was trying to be a good parent but it probably... So what happens is Satan not only accuses the people who aren't coming, then suddenly Satan gets in and accuses all of you and suddenly you hear in your ear, well, I'm not a very good Christian, you know, I haven't done very well. So what happens is this, this sort of condemnation, the accusation is contagious. And you just hear it all the time. So, you know, you come to church and your kid won't get up and get out of bed, so you come to church and you are miserable the whole time at church because, huh? You miss them, but also you failed, and they're lying at home, and they know they should, and they know they failed you, and suddenly everybody is kind of on edge, you know, right? Make sense, Mary? The last bit is where we want to go, and I, I, I'm very, it's very nice that you got there, so I have to kind of shift. I was going to say, well, Mary, there's one more thing you could be doing for him, but actually it's the last thing that we want to be emphasizing a bit. So if you want your kids to come back, um, Kleinig made a very interesting observation. He said, it's not that your kids go off to college and then they forget everything you've ever taught them. He said they move away or they go off to college and they do all kinds of things that they know they shouldn't have done, from drinking and drugs to being sexually immoral to staying away from the Eucharist to blah, 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 pick your poison. He said it's not that they don't, it's not that you haven't indoctrinated them, it's that you've indoctrinated them so well that when they come back to church or they're invited to church or they see a church, the church does what to them? Just the sight of it. Yeah, just the sight of it makes them feel guilty. Mm -hmm. Chains them. And so each time they, each successive time they see a church or somebody says something or somebody does something, it's not that they weren't indoctrinated well, it's that they were indoctrinated <coughs> so well that their sin is so before them that they're constantly shamed. And then you said it very well at the beginning, when people are constantly shamed, mm -hmm. they don't run toward the shame, they run away from the shame, right? Because who wants to be shamed? Exactly. And so two things have to happen. One is you need to create a congregation or a community that doesn't shame. It's not your job to shame. If you read, I think it was in, although I can never remember where I was, was last week on the Eighth Commandment, in the, the long Luther bit from the Catechism, where he said it's not actually your job to shame. There's three persons whose job it is to shame. Pastors, parents, and judges. Everybody else has to be quiet. Wasn't that an interesting thing? Even if you know something horrible about somebody, it's not your thing to go do. You haven't been in position. It's your job to take care of your kids and my job to take care of your kids after you. And if your kid gets in trouble, then it's a judge's job too. We hope we don't get there, right? But, there's, but that happens, you know. There's three, there's three persons who are in charge of another person. The pastor, who's for the community, the parent for the family, and the judge for the greater, you know. But everybody else has to be quiet. Now, wouldn't that be nice? That's just straight Lutheran stuff, in fact. That's just the straight Lutheran gig. It's right there from the, that's right from the large catechism. Here's the thing that happens if everybody else is quiet. If everybody else is quiet, what happens? Then you have people who have been in church for a while, and they sit down, and you say to them, it's so nice to be here. And you don't have to quiz them. You don't have to worry about them. You don't have to judge them. All you get to do is love them. And then when they move to that table, the only thing you can say is, hey, I thought we loved you. And then they'd say something back to you like, you did love us, but these people are loving us too, and love is always more, and isn't this great? And then they call me, or I call them, and they say, wow, what a nice church you have, because when I show up, 
everybody loves me. So the first thing you need to do is create an environment of love. That means you can't have an environment of complaint. And we talked about complaint as, in fact, I read it again. It's very interesting. The stuff that we talked about three weeks ago where I said to you, the devil can't read your mind, but if you complain, you actually show the devil your weak points and you can expect attack at those things. So one of the reasons for just keeping your mouth shut is that Satan is always listening. I actually get, uh, somehow I got to a blog spot this morning. I was looking up something completely different. I got to a blog spot on spiritual direction and the person, this is almost word for word, the person wrote, you should know that Satan studies you. I thought that's very interesting because you remember we had the opening margin comment about six weeks ago where it said Satan studies Jesus and he thinks he get him all figured out and the cross is the big reversal. Well, it's not going to quite go that well for me because I'm not Jesus and Satan is learning a lot more about me than he should. But here's the thing, the, the opening, this person was writing for some spiritual care and the guy blogged back and said, you should know, he was a, he's a spiritual director, he said, you should know that Satan studies you. He listens when you talk and he watches when you act. And so he knows what you're going to do in particular situations. And so he can, it's like having a big brother who you know, knows how to, if you had more than one kid, you know how one kid pushes another kid's buttons, yeah. Boop, right? He said, that's exactly what Satan does to you. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what we talked about about four weeks ago when we talked about living without complaint. I mean, that just kind of expands the deal. Okay, well, what we don't want to do is create a place where we constantly show our weaknesses, especially to Satan, and then next, especially to our kids, so a positive and a negative. You don't want to show it to Satan because that draws attack. When you get a complaining church or a disrupted church, you invite the demons to attack. But also, um, the other side of that is, if you're a non-complaining, non-judgmental church, it doesn't mean you don't have standards, it just means that you limit your judgment to the proper application of the law. If you create a loving place, then when people come in, they feel, ah, no matter what I've done, I'm not shamed. I'm not judged. I'm loved. Isn't that great? So that's the first thing. You create a community of love, and we've kind of done that. The other thing, Nora, what happened? Did you get kicked out, Nora? <laughs> Just want you to know that we're not in judgment of you. We all love you, okay? Just once your mom, that's all right, that's good. So the first thing you do is you create a community of love. The second thing that you do is pray for people. And you have this very interesting thing, um, these very interesting stories in the gospel. So I'm finally, you know, 20 minutes in, so the, but the thing is, this is only just a prompt. Sometimes people will say to me, we never get through your whole thing in one, and I'm like, yeah, because it's not a transcript. It's just kind of helping me remember. That it's like, you know, hike that direction, okay? So, um, you know, we started with the, with the, with the frustration of, of, of a place. So how do, you, how do you solve that frustration? One is you create a community of love and not of judgment. There's plenty of judgment to go around. It's like when people, sometimes at a funeral, people will say, how come you didn't preach more law? I'm like, preach more law? There's a body lying in the casket. How much more law do you need? You know, you, you really don't need any law. You've got a stiff body there, you know? You could just kind of point at it and then go on with the gospel. <laughs> the wages of sin is death and, you know, blah, blah. And you don't, so 
believe me, hold your law judgment impulses, okay? Just kind of keep them in check. There's plenty naturally to go around. And in fact, it's a little bit like taxes. We've got some carryover from years past, which we're going to go ahead and use up, okay? If you get losses in a business, you carry them over to a forward. Yeah, we, you know. So the next 10 years, don't say anything. Just love everybody you see, and it'll all work out, I promise you, okay? It just is all going to work out because people are going to walk through the door and say, this is nice. Okay, the second thing is, um, what you can do is pray for people. And Jesus, so, you know, Atlas bears up the world, the monks bear up the world, you bear up the world with your prayers. And Jesus makes that very clear. Um, so right off the bat, and we're not going to have a look at all these because you know the stories, but the first one is um, this Roman centurion for the paralyzed servant. Do you remember that story? Can you remember, can you remember that story? This guy has a paralyzed servant. Um, he doesn't even think to come to Jesus, and um, he sends some, he's a centurion, so he's a Gentile, but he's such a popular guy with the Jews around him that he sends the Jews to say, you remember what they say about this guy? They come to Jesus and they say, you should help this guy. It sounds like Chicago politics. You should help this guy because he has done an awful lot of stuff. In fact, one of them, I think, even talks about um, building a synagogue. And there actually is, interestingly, in northern Israel, there actually is a synagogue that has a dedication uh, to a Roman centurion who built the synagogue, which is very weird for a Gentile to be helping out to build a, a, a Jewish place of worship. In any case, they come, um, they come and, and he's, you know, they send people and they say, you know, would you heal this guy's servant? And Jesus kind of marvels. Um, and actually from this story is where... Um, later his engagement is the prayer before communion that's regularly said, which you could say too. It's a, what's probably priests say it, pastors say it, and people can say it too. Lord, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof, but say the word and I will be healed. That's a common Eucharistic prayer before you receive the, before you receive the body and the blood. It's this sense of Jesus is going to enter you. Lord, I'm not worthy that you'd come under my roof, but say the word and I would be healed. It's a, you know, this, this story has always led itself to prayer. So the centurion has a servant he loves dearly. He comes to Jesus and he says, he prays to Jesus, he asks Jesus, would you heal that guy over there? Okay, that's your first story. The next one is um, the man with the dead daughter. You know, he comes to Jesus and he says, um, you know, my daughter's dead, I loved her dearly, would you care for her? What does Jesus do? Raises her from the dead. So there's another one. See. The dead person can't do anything at all. And this is very interesting. Jesus in other places heals people because of their faith, right? So, Carol, you'd get healed because of your great faith. Never have I seen faith like this, right? So you get healed because of your faith. But if you're dead, you're not getting healed because of your faith. You're getting healed because of Nancy's faith, because Nancy goes to Jesus and says, could you heal Carol? Got nothing to do with you, pure gift. This is a great Lutheran story, right? You didn't do anything at all. You pray, you bear Carol's burden, and the father bears the daughter's burden, death, to Jesus, and Jesus says, that's great, okay? This is just to let you know that it works, okay? In fact, it's more common than you would guess. Um, the next one is uh, the very famous story of the Canaanite woman. You remember this? Jesus, she comes to Jesus and says, um, and a woman first, and a Gentile woman. So she's a Canaanite, she's a pagan. She's also a Gentile, she's a woman. So all the borders are being crossed here. She comes to Jesus and she says, you know, my daughter suffers, blah, blah, blah. And what does Jesus say to her? This is the famous one where Jesus says to her, 
Oh, oh uh, no, this is, no, this is the one where she's, see, this is the problem with, no, no, this is a different one, sorry. And this is the, this is the, yeah, this is the one where she says, hey, do I take stuff for the table and give it to the dogs? You remember this? And then the woman says famously back to Jesus, yeah, I get the crumbs. Hey, I'll take the crumbs. Come on. You know, love me up. And Jesus is just stunned by this. You know, again, he says, I, you know, you just can't find people like this. I mean, he turns to other people and says, I mean, he's basically saying, why can't you be like this table, right? I mean, you can't, you're all supposed to be good Jews. And look at this. You know, Jesus is just beside himself. And, of course, he heals them. So once again, it's not the faith of the, faith of the little girl. The mom comes. So you have a question of, so, I mean, should be making all the connections now, especially if you have two boys or four boys or four boys or two boys. You should be saying to yourself, this is really good because a mom can go to Jesus and say, my kid is an idiot slash in trouble slash dead. And then Jesus says, that's good because often we're, we, what do we do first? We want to tune our kids up, right? Because if we get them tuned up, if we wash them up and make them comb their hair, then what? then Jesus will love them more. And if Jesus loves them more, then he'll give them finally what we want. Haven't you told your kids to straighten up before you come to church? You have said this, right? Have you ever said to your kid, you're going to go to church looking like that? Have you said this? You bad, bad people. Right? Now, just, but just pause for a second. Why do you say, I know, here's the thing, everybody's, yeah, I know, Exactly. So here's the thing, I, you know, so, and why do you say that? Why do you say that? Because one, you think, yes, but okay, but go behind them. We want them to be respectable. Respectable to whom? Who's good? Sorry? Oh, you want them to be respectful toward other people, right. Believe me, that's, that's white gloves and table manners, like way down the road from where I'm talking about. Yeah, right. What are you worried about? You, why do you want to look good, though? Yeah, there you go. Okay, so th- now we finally get to it. So other people are going to judge you, and then they're also going to judge your kid. And then, of course, behind that is also, hey, if other people in the community are judging you, then maybe Jesus is judging you too, right? So God forbid that there could be any public and sinners, prostitutes, or lepers in the congregation this week. Let's try to get everybody healed up before they come to church, because otherwise, Right? Worshiping in happy chaos. Yes, Jan. I can only accept you. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let me just ask you a question about Grandma's church. How many members does it have today? Does, it, does everybody have the blue eye and blue hair there? I know. See, that's the thing. It's a, so it's a bad example because you can't... Yeah, right, okay. So there are some things that overcome even the social things I'm talking about, as in being, being German. Right. Exactly right. But you, can, you just, can you just hear how you're telling the story, which is exactly genius? I mean, you're all telling, you know, what we had to go through. I mean, can you, you're, what other organization would you join where you said... I mean, it's just it's like going to the dentist is how you're talking about this, right? Worshiping the church, right? Which I then fall back to, it's not your job to judge. It's parents' job to judge, so you can do a little bit of judging if you want. It's the pastor's job, the judge's job. It's parents, pastors, and judges. Everybody else, be still. So 
everybody else can put their breath back in where they took it out of. <laughs> everybody breathe in, because people, those Grzeski boys, they just came in leather jet from Chicago. I bet they're in a gang. I bet they're in a gang. Oh, that's all. That can only make it better when it's only the front row. That can only that can only make it better, right? Um, Tony, you have these great stories uh, of Jesus, where it's not you saying to Jesus, "This is what I need," but you're saying, "This is what Carol needs. This is what Penny needs. You know, this is what you need." So we're going to pray for you because this is what you need. Okay. Um, there are also, and you can look these up on your own, um, there are nine, nine places in Matthew where people um, bring folks to Jesus. They bring folks. It's not people say, I want this. People bring other people. So now you have to, um, you got to think about a church. You got to think about being, a, I mean, if you want to be a Jesus church, if you want to be some other kind of church, I mean, go ahead, but that's not us. I will fight you tooth and nail on this. We need to be the sort of church. This is not, and you should not mistake me for saying, anything goes. I mean, clearly, anything does not go. But to get people into the life of Christ, you've got to take them where they are. It's not that they get to make the, make the rules or decide what the life of Christ is. It's just that it takes a little time to draw people in. So um, you have to be the kind of congregation where if people, somebody brings somebody else to Christ, you say, I'll pray for you rather than I'll judge you. It's that simple, okay? And you need to create the environment. And I'll just tell you, the audible gasp when somebody walks in is not the sort of thing that makes people want to come back, right? It just doesn't work very well. Okay, so this is, uh, the next thing is a famous story, and it's typed out there for you from Mark 2. Um, and you know this story, but I want you to think about the story from a different angle, which is um, how Jesus sizes up the situation and how Jesus addresses the situation, and whether, um, I'll I just pose it to you in this way, it's the Grzeski boys in leather jackets, is, you know, kids who have been out of the church for a while, it's your college kid who went away and did all kinds of things and now comes back, you know, it's a kid who didn't go to college and now doesn't want to come because everybody else went to college, you know, and it's a painful question when you say, what are you doing now, and they say, you know, I'm working, and then people are like, shouldn't you be in college? You're like, the matter with you? So, you know, here's the thing. The, Mark 2, the person on the mat is every person you know who's outside the church who needs to be brought into the church. That's the story. So, you know, we'll read this one because we'll work a little. We can't do, you know, all 13 of the other stories, but we'll do this one, 14. A few days later, when Jesus again came to Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come to his house. So Jesus is home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even at the door, and he preached the word to them. So whatever Jesus was saying was not the sort of things that was pushing people out the door, it was pulling people in the door. So whatever you're doing, and whatever I'm saying, whatever you're saying, whatever I'm doing, needs to be the sort of thing that pulls people in the door, any kind of people, instead of pushing them out the door, okay? So you know this, and crabbiness, and judgment, that's all banned now, because, you know, under the Eighth Commandment, it's not yours to do. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic. So this is so cool, this is the exact story. They bring him. He's got a burden. It's not their burden. They're bringing somebody else. So this is, you're bearing up the burden of a friend. Carried by four of them, since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. This great story. 
we'll do anything to get our friend some help, okay? When Jesus saw their faith, so he sees Kathy's faith, and because of Kathy's faith, he's going to help Nancy. So when he sees faith here, he's going to help her. Make sense? Son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the teachers... Uh, so let's just pause there, okay? Um, so they obviously want him... What's going on there? I mean, they obviously... Obviously, they think the guy's problem is that he can't walk, and that is, of course, his problem. But what is Jesus? How does Jesus define the situation? Yeah, Jesus always does the big things first. So Jesus sees behind it. So, you know, this is, these are your college kids. Your college kids go away, and they do all kinds of stupid, 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 stupid <coughs> stuff. And you told them, by the way, before they went, don't do stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. And then they went and they did stupid, stupid, stupid stuff, right? And so they want, when they come home, what's the, what are the two possibilities? One is you're stupid, 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 stupid. Or the other is everybody does stupid stuff, and this is the place where it gets forgiven, right? So Jesus sees that we're all bundled up, and we've all got stuff, and it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. But the primary need for people is to be loved. Forgiveness is love. Forgiveness says to people, no matter what you've done, you're mine. That's what forgiveness does. No matter what you've done, you're home, right? No matter what you've done, I will help you. That's what forgiveness is. So Jesus does the hard thing first. He does the big thing first. He does the hard thing first. He does the most important thing first. Yes, Mary? It is good. Yeah, that's very good. Especially when he said Mary Margaret. Yeah. That's great. All right. So Jesus makes that kind of warm place that always lets you come home. Now look what happens. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, like this is what they were thinking, this. Okay? Right? So immediately they think it's their deal to judge. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Judgment, judgment, judgment. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Now here's the thing. You know, Jesus is very clever, but sometimes this pours out of people so easily that even we could see it, right? <laughs> and he said to them, which is easier? So am I doing big things or small things, easy things, hard things? What's easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up and he took his mat and he walked out, just an aside on healing. So for your next time you're at a tent meeting, when Jesus heals, it's always um, complete and it's always public. It's very interesting. Um, a lot, you can, this is how you sort real healings, and real healings do happen, but you sort real healings in this way. Um, they're in the name of Jesus, they're immediate and they're public. There's no question about them. And that always happens with Jesus. Um, there's only one instance in the whole scriptures and the Gospels where that happens. It's one where, and Jesus seems to be playing a little bit of a game um, talk, where, where he says the man who's blind and he starts to heal him, and then the guy says, he says, can you see? And he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. And Jesus says, okay, here's the rest. And that seems to be uh, pointing toward him going back to Jerusalem. And the guy does get healed, and it is public. But in every case, healing is instantaneous, 
complete in the name of Jesus and very public, okay? So I just want to observe that, then tuck that away for someday when you're thinking about healing. Um, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and he got up, he took his mat, he walked out in full view of them all, very public. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, and they said, hey, we never saw a church like this. Hey, this isn't a normal church, right? In a sense, Jesus is having a church. He's having a house church. It's his, it's his house. So um, now what are you going to do with that? So let's start here. Um, Jesus has given all of you faith. That's really the good news. He loves you. He forgives you. He's given you faith. You have it as a gift. You're here on a Friday. Um, who comes on a Friday? People who have faith. So Jesus has given you faith. And it's your task and your joy to exercise that faith. And one of the ways that you exercise that is by praying for other people. Um, any sin, you know, see, you have to, I'm always thinking to myself, I wonder if you can remember this, can you put the pieces together? Remember we talked about, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the baptismal liturgy where you spit on the kids, right? What an impoverished church are because we don't have that. Remember, you spit in their ears, you spit on their tongue, you rub their eyes, you blow, you lift the eyelid and you blow underneath it. So why? Why do you do that? Can you remember why, why did you do that? Because what were you trying to show the congregation and the kid when you did that? When you spit on them and touch their tongue and touch their ears and blow under their eyelids, what were you trying to show them? What's the point of that? Yeah, it is exorcism. You're getting rid of the devil. You're corrupted. So sin means you can't see. Sin means you can't hear. Sin means you can't talk. Sin means you can't walk. Sin just totally corrupts you. And it, 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 it shows itself in different ways. You can't think clearly, you know, you can't see clearly, you can't hear clearly, you can't talk clearly. Think about the ways you sin when you talk. Think about the ways how you hear things, people say things and they meant one thing and you take it in another way. Think about, you can't, you can't think rationally because your reason isn't forgiven or your emotions aren't right because your emotion isn't forgiven. You're a mess. I mean, sin bundles us up and screws us up in every direction, right? So we come every week and we get forgiven. And when we get forgiven, we leave our sins here. Jesus takes away your sins. And you go back out in the world. You're filled with faith and you're healed up. Now you can see clearly. Now you can, you can hear clearly. You can speak clearly. And what Jesus says to you is to use that gift then for other people, to bear other people's burdens. We so often talk about, and so much of the preaching and teaching you hear about is, could you get yourself fixed up? Okay, this is step two. You're fixed up because you've been to the Eucharist. You're here on Friday. You have the gift of faith. The important thing is that you bear other people now to Christ. And the way you bear them is not by saying, take off those leather jackets. The way you bear them is to pray for them. You can yell at your kids all day long about going to church, but as you found out, it's not the age of 18 or 21 where you lose control of your kids. You know, it's better if your kids don't figure this out, but after about 12 or 13, you can't do anything to your kids and make, I mean, you, what can you, how can you make a 13-year-old do something? Four boys, four boys, four boys. What's the matter with you people? Four boys. They're, I mean, don't tell them. Yeah, yeah. No, or, or my mom. I mean, my mom used to hit us from behind. I mean, she was, my mom's not this big, you know? So, I mean, for some years, she would just hit us from behind when we didn't know what was going on. Because otherwise, what's she going to do? Yeah, she's too, you step away. You just, all you have to do is step back. It's too easy, you know? So, so here's the thing. I mean, after, don't tell the boys, but after about 12 or 13, there's nothing you can do. You can't make mm -hmm. another person do anything for a very long period of time. You're right? You just can't do it. You just can't do it. So why would you, you know? So at some point, um, you should admit that, 
and you should also admit that people are spiritually crippled, and you should also admit that um, shaming people is not going to get them back to church. So what are your options? Loving them and praying for them. Those are your options. You're never going to shame people back into church. You're never going to force people back into church. The minute they're out of arm's reach, the minute they're out of sight, they're going to do what they want. So the church needs to be a joyous, attractive, kind place where your kids, who are idiots, just like you are an idiot, can come back and be loved. Well, were, are, depends on the day you're having. So it's great. If you can make it all the way to 1030 and not be an idiot, God bless you, but it's coming at us like a freight chain, Mary. Good, that's exactly what you should. Step out of the way. That's exactly right. Karen. He's, yeah, I'm not going to say it because it's on the tape. He may be, but you should pray for him then. Because let's just take that example, which I don't necessarily want to put into the tape, but just take that example. So you have somebody who's an idiot. Now, just can you force that person to do anything? No. So all you can do is pray for them. But the great joy is you see what happens when you pray for people. I mean, there's 13 stories. There's, we, we did nine stories in Matthew. There's four in the other Gospels. And now we're doing this one about Mark. The great power of praying for other people. Now, in some ways, this should be a great comfort to you because you can feel so impotent with your kids. You know, you can feel, you know, they get out of your grasp and, you, you, you know, they do stuff and they go away. Your friends, you know, your friends. Have you had, you're old enough to have friends who have done really stupid, stupid things. Are you not? Right? I mean, people that you know and trust and suddenly you, you just don't, you can't, they, they, who are you? Right? You just don't recognize them. I mean, people are fragile and crazy, and they do the weirdest things, and you think you can rely on them, and then you can't, and, you know, blah, blah, right? Um, sometimes the best thing you can do is simply pray for them. And when you pray for them, now we go all the way back to the first thing, be sure that you don't have to inform Jesus of what's happening. He knows. And you don't have to dun him in order to get him to react. He's more willing to give than you are to receive. So... Um, with your prayers, you pick up your friends, you exercise your own faith, and you lay them at the feet of Jesus. And then it's up to Jesus to take care of them. And now we're back all the way to the point of the story about the king in the Old Testament. When you give the king the problem, it's the king's problem. And it's not your problem anymore, right? You can check in from time to time, you know, but it's not your problem anymore. Where are you, my dear? Are you on the second? Sec- are you reading it off the sheet? Or are you just no, reading? No, no, no. You're randomly reading. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, good. Bear one another burdens, yes, right? Yeah, law can have a narrow use in the scripture. So law there is probably um, a Hebrew. It's a translation. It's Galatians, so it's Paul. He's a Hebrew. Law has a narrow sense. Torah, all the revelation of Christ. Law also has the narrow sense, Ten Commandments of Judgment. In that sense, so fulfill, you could have the life of Christ or so fulfill the embodiment of Christ or so embody Christ. So law doesn't, you're a good Lutheran reading from a catechism, but you can't read that back into that text because that text doesn't always mean that. So happy is the man who observes the law of the Lord. Um, The very first psalm, Psalm 1. 
It seems it rattles you because it says law. Well, no, it just, I, I just don't understand what it means. Well, it means, here's the thing. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes, okay, so think of it this way. Jesus says to you, forget about, I, I think the stumbling block is, the, is what we think of when we, think, when we hear L-A-W, okay? Because we usually hear this. But Hebrews meant something much different. They meant all the revelation of God. So think of it. Well, so, so it's this simple. Jesus says, pray for your friends. He says, pray for your enemies. So when you pray for them, you fulfill what Jesus asked you to do. It just doesn't mean anything more than that. It just means, please do what Jesus asked you to do. It'll be really good for you. It'll be really good for them. It's good for the whole world. It binds you into the Holy Trinity. So it, it means everything positive. Yeah, but good grammar could all be very reversed. Yeah. Of course, so then the, so then the words German community center is a self-contradiction. <laughs> I do know what you mean, because the other thing is it's a big fake, because all the Germans knew what all the other Germans were doing anyway, right? They just didn't say it out loud. So, um, yeah, it just means, all that means is say prayers for the people, and that by doing that, you live in the image of Christ. I mean, Christ is the great revelation. I mean, Christ fulfills the law perfectly. Christ is the great revelation. It just makes, means live the life of Christ. Christ is the ultimate this is what's going on in the Holy Trinity, and this is what you were meant to be as a human being. And one of the things that Jesus does most is pray for other people. I mean, Romans, we did the Romans passage, Romans 8. Romans 8 is great because it has both the Holy Spirit and Jesus. What did Jesus and the Holy Spirit do all day long? They pray for you. It's so good. It's like, you know, right around 9 and then around 19, or it's 19 and 29, something like that. But both Jesus, they're both all day long. They love you, and they're talking to the Father about you all day long. And then they say to you, want to play? You can talk all day long, too, for Mary, because Mary could use an extra prayer today. So you can talk, and so it's you and the Holy Spirit and Jesus all talking to the Heavenly Father about Mary. There is a lot to say there, okay? And by noon, I would think Mary will be a completely different person. For, I mean, her day is going to go from good to better like that, right? And that's the blessing then you are to her. Now, if you could run the whole church that way, if you could multiply that, imagine what your church would be like, right? This is really good. This is really good stuff. So, you know, we constantly um, are in prayer for other people. A couple of things, just um, one of the coolest things I ever, I ever bumped into was a very good uh, theologian who kept a book of pictures. And in his prayers, you all keep lists. I, I, mean, I imagine sometimes you keep lists. But this guy actually kept a book of pictures because it was more engaging. So when he said his prayers, he would flip through this book. And he knew by each face and each family what it is that those people... It's sort of... You know how this works. When you look at a picture, it just brings everything to mind, right? You should, could, might help if you... Um, kind of kept the list of, of things um, to pray for. Uh, Kleinick said, you know, every Sunday morning he sits down and he, makes a, he just drops a list of all the people he's going to pray for during the week. Um, all the people that God has put into his life, and particularly he prays for those who uh, have fallen away or are in some danger. Um, you get this, uh, Luther has this say, saying, he just alludes to it here, but he says, 
um, Luther has this saying that you, you carry people to you carry people to the altar when you go to the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is about you getting the body and blood, but also he says you piggyback people. It's like you, you put them on your back and you carry them to the altar and you drop them off when you get there. Isn't that great? So what you're supposed to do is, and we've often talked about this with your sins. Um, you know, we've regularly said to you, you bring your sins to the altar, you leave them there, and then, you know, Jesus cleans them up. It's also true for all your friends. All the things you're worrying about, the people you know who are in danger, the people you know who are sick, you bring those people to the altar and you drop them off. And they stay there and then Jesus takes care of them. It's this great image. Yes, please. They should. Right. Right. Well, yeah, it's enough to say... Yeah, you should think the best. So the, the most you need to say is, um, hey, Jesus, there seems to be trouble over there at that back table. I mean, look at the three of them. <clears throat> and then you leave the details up to him. Because this is the good thing now. We kind of brought you free of this last week and the week before of having to make a laundry list of details and tell Jesus just how to sort it out. This is the great freedom you have in your prayer. You don't have to sort anything out. And you notice the guys, the guys didn't even talk in this story, did they? They drop the guy down, and Jesus sees it, and he takes over. That's enough. Um, the other thing about it is it's not very helpful. Um, speculation about other people's sins is never very helpful, right? Because it often wraps us up, and it doesn't turn out to be quite as bad as it usually is, or we don't actually know what's going on. So, again, pastors, parents, and judges are, have to investigate when they investigate. Um, judges investigate by nature. Parents never quite know if they should go through their kid's sock drawer. And um, pastors don't probe, but occasionally, you know, you need to think about things. But usually, commonly, you say to Jesus, that looks like trouble. Could you work on that? And that's enough. And that's all they do here, right? They say, we've got this trouble, but they don't tell them what to do. They just sort of lay the person before them, and <laughs> off it goes, right? Yeah, right. Can I say one more thing about that? We don't have the strength to investigate. Um, you know, people who, who, do, who do investigation, this is true for policemen, for judges, for parents, people who re for pastors, people who really have to do the nitty-gritty, it is, it is it damage. It can damage your soul. It's terribly, it's terribly weighty. And you don't want to be involved in that. Um, and it, you're, it's kind of like exorcists, you know. There's a special group of people who are exorcists, and they get special training, and once a year they meet in Rome, and they get cared for themselves and they because when you engage something that's so difficult you just need extraordinary strength that's true for parents who have very troubled kids for example or very troubled bigger situations it's true for for cops who investigate really horrible things if you know cops and you talk to them a little bit you know there's tons of stuff they don't talk about but it does burden it bubbles out of them and you know it's better for you just to say this looks like a trouble could you please take care of that one for me and when it comes to you when it's your kid, your husband, your wife, your whatever, you'll know enough and the Lord knows more. And you have to remember what he wants to do is bless. He doesn't need any help with the kind of the dirty details. He'll, if we could orient ourselves more toward the gospel than the law, we would be so much better off. So there, your other thing. Go ahead. Really? How did she know one from another? Practical question. I, I think Put her name down? Put her name down. Interesting.
That's kind of fun. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's kind of that's kind of fun. Well, however, however you do it, it's mo it's the most important thing to know. That's actually extraordinarily clever. You had one other question, or was that it? Nope, that's it. All right, let's close up with this last reading um, from First John five, which is you know all about love and helping other people. I write these things to you who believe. So I write this to the church in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So you're set. Life's good. You're the church. Now what? This is the insurance, I'm sorry, this is the assurance we have in approaching God. So he just presumes that faithful people are going to approach God and pray. That is, if we ask for anything according to his will, and we've talked about that now with using names and knowing his will and studying scripture and meditation, we've done all that. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, paralytics, teenagers, kids, next-door neighbors. We know that we have what we have asked of him. And then this very, you know, full sentence. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray for him, and God will give him life. And that kind of goes to your last question. You know, so often in churches, and you can get churches that are terribly, you know, you start to pick at people and you look at people and you examine people and it's your week this week and we're going to really take it and then it's you and then that destroys people. Not every sin is a mortal sin. We've talked about this in the past. Not every sin is unto death. We're all going to go through the day. We're all going to sin. It is in our nature and it comes out of us. And the worst thing you can do is expect other people to be perfect. So basically, when you see me being an idiot today, unless it you know exceeds the bounds of he's just having a bad day, What's your response? A, you can come to me and start to scream. B, you can call the district president. Or C, you can do what Jesus says to do in the scripture and pray for me. And wouldn't it be interesting if when we observe poor behavior in other people, or even when there's sketchy things like those leather jackets, you know, maybe the first thing that people could do is they could, well, they could not pray that the leather jackets would go away. They could pray for the boys under the leather jacket. You see what I mean? Your, how many of you, your first response, and actually, you see this sometimes in neighborhoods and when people, and I ran this, this was in, Luther actually says this under the, when we ran this thing about the second commandment from the large catechism. Do you remember when Luther said, he said, when people see a tragedy and they go, Lord, have mercy, and they cross themselves? Mm -hmm. Usually we blow that off as, you know, you shouldn't be that familiar. Luther encourages that. He's, and he gives, he gives a couple of examples. He says, when you see something really bad, you should say, Lord, have mercy, and cross yourself. Why do you do that? And here it is right here. And pray for your... Pray. So you're having a bad day? You know, Lord have mercy. Right? That's the response. Instead of saying to Donna, can you believe Marilyn? I mean, can you believe that? Instead you say, Lord have mercy on her. She must be struggling today. You know? Does it make sense? That's how, and that's how you build people up and help them. You bear them in front of Christ. It's right there. Please do that. So you're basically just saying, devil go away. Exactly. When you, when you bring people into judgment, I mean, the devil is always the accuser. You know, you, it's, it's very easy to bring something satanic down on other people. I mean, Jesus in the end comes to a rescue and he makes it good. But, you know, we punish other people in ways that we don't even realize. What this, what this all of this, what this all this is, it kind of eliminates all that because it suspends judgment and it brings their burden before Christ and says, Christ, would you deal with it? And unless you're a parent or a pastor or a judge, it's not your job, right? It's not your job. 
It's a burden if you get, but people who get that sign up for that burden. But it's not helpful when everybody else tries to take over that burden. I mean, look at this thing where the, and I don't know the details, but there's this young guy who was shot in Florida. Everybody is saying, everybody knows in advance what the answer is on all sides. Everybody knows. The, the whole city is in an uproar. Because everybody knows, nobody knows yet. And that's why you have a judge somewhere that will sort it out. And I'm not, I'm not taking any side. It doesn't smell very good, but I'm not taking any side. I'm just saying, everybody wants to be the judge, right? Everybody wants to parent your kids. I could do a much better job with Nora than the, you know. No, but that, isn't that how people, when people look over at you in church and they do this, this is partly why we're trying to create the environment of kids in church, because when you look over and do this, how is that helpful for you? You're never coming back, and Nora's not coming back either, right? Instead, we say, that is the best kid, and this is actually easy. That is the best kid, except for your kids and your kids and your kids. I mean, but that, that is the. I mean, look at that kid. Has she, she hasn't bothered us a lick. Isn't it great that she's in? It's the best, you know. Put down the snow fence. Throw Cheerios on the floor. Let them go. It's going to be fine. As long as they don't get out into the street, everything's going to be okay, right? So the the takeaway from this is suspend your judgment, and when you see people who and things aren't going very well, you just simply say to God. Maybe you could have a look over there when you're not busy with, you know, the Geiglers or, you know, the Bruzics or somebody else. You know, maybe you could just check that out, right? Isn't that a much better way to live? And then people say, oh, you're praying for me. Oh, you love me. Oh, you don't judge me. Oh, you welcome me back. Oh, Ick is your demographic. Oh, idiots welcome here. Oh, we're all bums, but we're the Lord's bums, so it's all going to work out, you see? And then suddenly people can be real human beings in advance of the time when they're fully human when they get to heaven. And then suddenly you have a church and then suddenly everything works and then people find out about the little baby Jesus and things grow and it all just works on itself. And all that from you praying for other people. Make sense? All right, good. All right, next week we'll go <clears throat> and then uh, we won't go. But we will see you next week. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. See ya.